Good morning. Well, it's so good to see everyone this morning. My name is Hugh, and I serve on the leadership team here at SDC. And uh, you know, for the for the past several weeks, we've been doing a series of teachings entitled "Build." Um, so far, we have addressed what is the church and why it matters. Uh, <clears throat> What is church membership and why it matters? Why we gather, um, the gift of Sunday and why it matters. Uh, what is the mission of the church and why, why it matters. And why we sing, that was last week, and why it matters. Well, this morning we're going to talk about having a faith that both rests and works and why it matters. Um, at first glance, uh, this may seem like somewhat of a contradiction, uh, a paradox, so to speak. Uh, to take this a little further, one may ask the question, how can something, faith in this case, rest and work at the same time? We'll spend the remainder of this morning exploring that concept that we as we peel back uh, the layers and, and reveal the gospel truth that I hope will both encourage and motivate us in our faith, as well as enable us to face diverse and sometimes trying situations and circumstances as we engage in Christ's mission to go into all the world and make disciples, whether we're making new disciples or maturing existing ones, as Alan taught us a couple weeks ago. Our salvation, which is by God's grace, marks the start of a journey called sanctification, which culminates, culminates in glorification and is the final blessed state of the redeemed, a point uh, at which point <clears throat> or time we will be like the one who we loved, the one who we cherished and the one who we dedicated our lives to while we're here on this earth. Um, as we learned when we studied the letter to the Hebrews, it is a journey on which we walk by faith and are sustained and kept by God's grace. On this journey, God's desire and plan is for us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel of grace itself is the perfect tutor, not the law. It's, you know, the gospel of grace serves us uh, in this so well. On this journey, we don't rely on our strength, our good works to live out and finish what God began by faith and the Spirit's work. We walk by faith, sustained by His grace, but being actively engaged in the good works which God prepared beforehand for us to walk in. So, in terms of a broad outline for the teaching this morning, the study will address three things. First, we'll define and describe true rest using key passages in Matthew 11 and in Hebrews 4. In fact, we'll go ahead and read Matthew 11, verses 28 and 29, which should be in your, your outline, <clears throat> it says, Come to me, all who labor and are heaven laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Hebrews 4.1, and we're going to look at an extended part of Hebrews 4, uh, chapter 4 later on, but uh, verse 1 says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So we're going to begin this morning uh, by uh, taking a brief look at rest as foreshadowed and depicted in the Old Testament. Uh, <clears throat> um, then second, we're going to talk about the fact that 
In rest, we cease from our own works and we will explore what that means in terms of what works we are to cease from. And we'll conclude by addressing the fact that in this place of true rest, this place of true rest is not one of inactivity, but of working in harmony with God. Finding true rest transforms the way we view and approach all work. All work that we do as we work along with Christ to build his church. So my prayer is that these gospel truths would both encourage, motivate, and further establish us in the faith. As I said earlier, enable us to face the future in which we may encounter diverse and sometimes trying situations and circumstances as we engage in Christ's mission to go into all the world and make disciples of all men. In terms of the main point of the lesson, it is this. Having a faith that truly rests in Christ will result in an abundance of good works and fruitfulness and a a life that truly glorifies and honors Christ as we participate in his work to build the church. Kind of an extended main point there. Um, So let's start by defining and describing what this rest is that Jesus in Matthew 11 and the writer of Hebrews is talking about. Um, So one of the things I wanted to say also is that uh, a few years ago, um, I actually preached a a message similar to this. So if you're here back then, you may be reminded of it. Uh, Many of you aren't, so... um, so you have the opportunity to hear it for the first time. But these truths are timeless truths anyway. So, and we need to hear them over and over again. <clears throat> so we're going to define biblical rest, what that really is. So when, when we think of rest, <clears throat> we most likely are thinking about a time or period of relaxation physically and mentally. Um, our concept of rest often translates to really not doing any meaningful work or activity um, or in, you know, involves any significant exertion of effort. Um, our bodies and minds do need rest, otherwise we get tired and stressed and without rest we will wear ourselves out or we stress ourselves out for sure, um, sometimes resulting in health problems. But this is not the kind of rest that Jesus is referring to when he invites the weary and heaven-laden to come to him and he would give them rest. Nor is it what the writer of Hebrews is exhorting his readers to enter into. So, biblical rest. The concept of biblical rest actually goes back to creation. After God completed his work of creating the heavens and the earth in six days, Moses tells us in Genesis 2-2 that God rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Furthermore, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. He set it apart because on it he rested from all his work of creation. God resting (coughs) on the seventh day does not mean that he, he was tired and he needed rest and, and, and he needed to recuperate. Yeah, obviously, that's kind of an obvious statement. He never gets tired and his most arduous expenditure of energy does not diminish his power. Um, God resting up on the seventh day simply means that he stopped what he was doing. The work that he was doing, it was done. Right, and so he rested. Nor does it mean that God ceased all work, for he has continued throughout history to work. He upholds all things by the power of his word, and one of his main work, really, is to woo and draw sinners to himself. So from the very beginning, we start to get an understanding of what the biblical rest that Jesus offers looks like. It entails stopping, ceasing certain work or activities that we've been doing, but other work does continue. Notice also that although God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, 
he did not require Adam and Eve to keep it as the Sabbath day. <clears throat> Remember, he only gave them one commandment, which was to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what they were to do was to enter God's rest. As part of God's perfect work of creation, he created man on the sixth day with everything provided for him to utilize to, uh, to, to, utilize to extend God's work throughout the earth. From that time forward, Adam and Eve and their offspring were supposed to work in harmony with God, worship God, and enjoy God's provisions while working to fill the earth with God's glory. Notice that they did nothing to earn or deserve this kind of a blessing. Adam, Eve, and their offspring also had the responsibility of teaching and extending the knowledge of God throughout every generation. Their work to tend God's creation and have dominion over it was made easy and their burden was made light because God had provided all the resources and everything they needed to accomplish their work, including himself. His power was available to them, his authority, his wisdom, guidance, all these things. They didn't even have to break a sweat to do this work. Right? Remember after the fall, work came with all kinds of sweating, right? Interesting. Well, <clears throat> we all know what the Great Commission is, right? Matthew 28, verses uh, 18 through 20. Remember, Alan preached on this a couple weeks ago regarding the mission of the church, which is to make disciples and mature existing ones. But do you realize that the Great Commission was first given by God to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28? He tells us there that God blessed them and told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This commission was to extend civilization across the face of the earth in a manner which would result in God being glorified throughout the earth. God entrusted that responsibility to Adam and Eve and their offspring, and he commissioned them for this very task. God had provided all the resources and everything they needed to accomplish their work as I said earlier, including himself, right? He was there, available. They were, gonna, they were to walk in harmony with him. So the first great commission then was given pre-fall to fill the earth with God's glory. The great commission given by the Lord Jesus Christ <clears throat> to disciples was to recover and restore what was lost through the fall and even exceed what was lost. They both required significant work of all kinds, <clears throat> and us working in harmony with God to accomplish this task. Unfortunately, though, this paradise in which God provided for Adam and Eve <clears throat> did not last very long, and something went terribly wrong. Adam and Eve sinned and plunged themselves and their offspring into depravity and separation from God where selfishness ruled the day and God's wrath against and judgment against sin awaited them. But God continued to work to rescue man from this dreadful situation. He promised that from the seed of the woman would come one who would bring about man's deliverance and Satan's destruction. The seed was, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Later God, blessed, sorry, later, God used the example of him resting on the seventh day after his work of creation to establish, to, to establish the principle of the Sabbath rest for, for his people, the Israelites. So <clears throat> we see in Exodus, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy that God gave the Israelites the fourth commandment 
This was part of the law. They were to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. On the seventh day of the week, they were to rest from their labors and give the same day of rest to their servants and animals. However, we need to understand that this was not simply physical rest for the people of God. In other words, God did not establish the seventh day rest because he knew that people would work so hard for six days and they really needed a day of rest so that they would not overwork and wear themselves out. Certainly, the temptation was always there to do that. But, <clears throat> and it certainly had, to, had that benefit for a number of them. But that, that was not the primary reason for establishing this day of rest. The Sabbath day was strategically established by God so that the people would stop their labors for a day and that day to be spent in worship of God for his deliverance out of slavery in Egypt <clears throat> and the promise of rest and blessing to come. But this cycle of labor and rest would be repeated week after week after week for centuries. It was a reminder of all that could have been. The rest that God had made provisions for at creation could have been, but wasn't because of sin. But man sinned, right? But equally important, it pointed them forward to the future when one, the Messiah, would come and once for all take care of the sin issue, thereby establishing God's people to once again enter into and enjoy God's rest. So the various elements of the Sabbath day celebration symbolized God's deliverance of his people from bondage in Egypt and the future coming of the Messiah who would provide permanent deliverance from the bondage of sin and provide permanent and really eternal rest for his people. Under the Mosaic law, the Jews were constantly laboring to make themselves acceptable to God. Their labors, including trying to keep all the requirements of the, you know, they had the ceremonial law, the judicial law, the civil law. And of course, we know that they could not keep all those laws. So God provided the means for them to come to him for forgiveness and restoration of fellowship through the various sin offerings and sacrifices. But the sacrificial system provided only temporary relief. And they had to continue to offer sacrifices year after year, which did not take away sin, only covered it, and was a constant reminder of their sinfulness and their inability to really draw near to God on an ongoing basis. These sacrifices were offered in anticipation, though, of the ultimate sacrifice of cross on the cross, who would offer one sacrifice for sins for all time. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 10. I think this may be in your outline. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which could te never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, awaiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For, one, for by one single offering, he, was, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Having made the ultimate sacrifice for sins, guess what Jesus did? Jesus rested from his work of atonement for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God because there was nothing more to be done, ever. His work was finished. He said it on the cross, didn't he? It was completed. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say in Hebrews 10:18, now where there is forgiveness for these things, speaking of sins and lawless deeds, there is no longer any offering for sin. <clears throat> Certainly not by Christ, <laughs> for sure but also not by us, whether by our works or law-keeping or anything else. 
Because of what Jesus did, by faith we could enter into God's provisions, thereby putting an end to all of our efforts, all of our labors. The fact is that that is really our only hope because our labors are worthless before God anyway. <clears throat> so then, the Sabbath they instituted by God under law was a foreshadowing of the true rest which is found only in Christ. He's the fulfillment of the Sabbath rest foreshadowed by the seventh day rest at creation and by the Sabbath day rest under the law. And as God blessed <clears throat> and as God blessed the Sabbath day, sanctified it and made it holy back in Genesis two, this perfect Son of God sanctifies and makes holy all who place their faith in him. So Hebrews 4, 10, 14 tells us that by a single sacrifice he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. <clears throat> this speaks of a completed work because it, it is a done deal. But because of the Spirit's ongoing work in us while we're still on this side of eternity, we're, we're progressively becoming what we already are through the sanctification process. So Hebrews, <coughs> excuse me, chapter 4, um, particularly the first 10 verses, is really the definitive passage that spells it out clearly that Jesus is indeed our Sabbath rest. It is not keeping the Sabbath day or any other day, nor is it performing enough good works to gain favor with God. Many Christians still have questions and arguments about whether the Sabbath day was changed from Saturday to Sunday or whether we are to keep the Sabbath day like they did back under the law. Um, and that seems like just an ongoing thing. Notwithstanding that as Christians we should certainly gather for corporate worship. Um, we've you know, talked about that earlier in the series. For worship, for teaching, mutual edification. Doing it on a specific day does not make it the Sabbath day. In reality, our gathering should be more about a person, Christ, than a day, really. As we look at Hebrews 4, keep in mind that Hebrews was written to a primarily Jewish audience. The first readers of the epistle to the Hebrews, those to whom the letter was originally written, were likely a Christian church made up largely of Jewish membership and Jewish people. They were apparently under repeated pressure, including persecution from their unbelieving fellow Jews and or some, or, or some Christian uh, Jews who taught that keeping particular aspects of the law of Moses was necessary for salvation. And so they were, were being tempted to add works, a works mentality to their Christian faith. Knowing their Jewish background, <clears throat> the author took advantage of their knowledge and their familiar with the old, familiarity with the Old Testament and the Old Covenant and skillfully presents arguments to show and encourages readers in several things. One, the superiority, of the, uh, the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant, that Jesus is the ultimate high priest who is superior to all the priests, the high priest that preceded him, that the gospel of grace through faith has always been God's means of salvation, and it was presented really throughout the whole testament that the types and shadows represented by the sacrificial system, you know, the feasts, the festivals under the old covenant, and the rest foreshadowed by the Sabbath day, and the promised land are all fulfilled in Christ, the Messiah. The writer uses these arguments to encourage his audience to endure through temptations, trials, and persecutions, <coughs> all these things they were facing, and to bring them forward into the knowledge of the gospel and thus establish them in the Christian faith and to hopefully prevent them turning from the gospel <coughs> against which they are earnestly warned. And we see many warnings in the book of Hebrews. 
But these arguments are not just meant for a Jewish audience. They serve to encourage all those who place their faith in Christ, whether Jews or Gentiles. It includes us, doesn't it, right? <clears throat> Hebrews 4 provides us with another picture <clears throat> excuse me, of God's rest, which was foreshadowed in the Old Testament by the Promised Land. Um, and you've probably heard people talk about that, again, the promised land and God's, you know, them entering into God's rest. Leading up to Hebrews 4, the author gave an extended exhortation using the poor and bad example of the Israelites in the wilderness. They failed to enter God's rest, which was the promised land, because of unbelief and disobedience. And we see that in chapter 4 and the first, in chapter 3 and the first part of chapter 4. Excuse me one second. The promised land was a picture of God's abundant provision for his people. Both in terms of the fruitfulness of the land. It was flowing. It's described as flowing with milk and honey. But really, and probably more, more important, was in terms of his unlimited resources available to them for taking the land. God himself, right, would go up before them in battle and they're assured of victory if they simply would trust him. But when they didn't trust him, <laughs> guess what happens? It was a picture of God's rest because they would not have to labor in their own wisdom and strength to possess the land. In fact, whenever they did that, they, they lost the battles, right, didn't they? They just had to trust him and to do what he tells them to do. The battle was the Lord's, not theirs. But you know what happened. They disobeyed God by not entering the land. <clears throat> when God commanded them to do so, which essentially resulted from their unbelief, their lack of faith and trust. We know <clears throat> that they later entered the promised land led by Joshua and Caleb, after a whole generation perished in the wilderness. But the writer of Hebrews has an interesting take on this story. <clears throat> and the old idea of the promised land being the ultimate true rest for God's people, as the Jews might have wrongly thought. So he tells us, he says in Hebrews 4, verses 8 and 9, If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The writer is essentially saying that the promised land was just a type and shadow of something much better that was ahead for God's people. The rest was to be found in one person, and that was Jesus Christ. And so the question is this, who are those who find true rest? Good question, right? The writer tells us in, in, in Hebrews 4.3, he says, For we who have believed enter that rest. Not those who keep the Sabbath, or those who try to keep all the commandments, or those who get circumcised, but those who believe. The question then is, believe what? <clears throat> what did they believe? Earlier in, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse uh, 14, the writer says this, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. And what is the beginning of our assurance? You see, the beginning of our assurance is by grace through faith in Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that is what we should hold fast to until the end. And not reverting to works or law keeping, trying to live out the Christian life as a means of securing our salvation. In fact, these are the very things that we are to cease from doing. 
chapter 4, verse 10, Hebrews, says that the one who has entered God's rest has himself ceased from his works as God did from his. Interesting statement, right? The writer is not saying that he is to cease from every kind of work, but rather he is to cease uh, or to really rest, in a sense, from his work to gain favor with God as a means of attaining salvation. So for us to experience God's rest, we must likewise cease from, from us trying to attain it by our works and efforts. That foregoing uh, discussion uh, in Hebrews <clears throat> about God's true rest provides then the perfect backdrop for understanding Jesus' invitation in Matthew 11 to come to him and he will give them rest. Like the recipients of the letter to the Hebrews, Jesus' uh, audience in Matthew 11 was primarily Jews. So they would have had first knowledge of the Old Covenant, the Sabbath day, and the concept of a Messiah who was prophesied to come and who would give them rest. But their theology about this Messiah and the rest he would bring was probably a little bit off. Perhaps they <clears throat> could have been thinking of reestablishment of the promised land to its glory days in the past. Certainly they were thinking of the Messiah coming into the uh, coming who would overthrow and crush and crush the oppression of the Romans and establish an earthly kingdom. But Jesus knew very well what their expectations were and how blinded they were by their own expectations. So look at what he says in, uh, in the preceding verses. It's starting in verse 25, uh, Matthew 11. I think you should have this in the, in the outline. Say, at that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, then, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. <clears throat> Here was the long-awaited Messiah standing in their midst, the one who everything in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant pointed to. But they did not recognize him. So instead of running to him, to Jesus, enter and experience the rest that he was offering, they rejected him, and in fact, they would rather put him away. To further show how high-minded they were about their own wisdom and how blinded they were about the true rest that the Messiah would bring, Matthew makes it a point to insert the next story about Jesus' disciples picking heads of grain and he eating, eating it on the Sabbath day. The, the Pharisees... <clears throat> were not very happy about this, and they accused Jesus and his disciples of breaking the Sabbath, of doing unlawful things on the Sabbath day. But Jesus reminded them of what David and his friends did on the Sabbath day centuries before by eating holy bread from the temple. And he was not condemned for it, was, for it, for it because of their dire need. The Pharisees had instituted a complex and confusing system of Sabbath laws of their own that was oppressive and legalistic. They had set up strict laws regarding how to observe the Sabbath, which included 39 categories of forbidden activities. In essence, these religious leaders had, had made themselves lords of the Sabbath. 
thus making themselves lords over the people. Their accusation of Jesus and his disciples was so ironic because celebration of the Sabbath was the very thing that foreshadowed and pointed forward to the true rest that would be found in Jesus, the Messiah, for those who would come to him by faith. But the very one who created the Sabbath day was here. He's the Lord of the Sabbath and was not subject to their convoluted interpretations of law regarding the Sabbath day. Just as the Sabbath day was originally instituted to give them rest from his labors, from their labors, so he, Jesus, comes to provide us rest from laboring to achieve our own salvation by our works. <clears throat> but Jesus was on a different mission from the expectations of the Jews and the religious leaders. It was a mission to crush what truly was oppressing the people. The weight of sin and its consequences. And he wanted to establish true peace and to bring true rest. So in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, Jesus invites all those who are weary and heaven laden to come to him so that they would find true rest for their souls. You know, weariness speaks of being worn out or fatigued because of hard labor. One element of that is laboring under the weight of sin and its consequences, which are constantly weighing us down. But a second aspect of that is laboring under the weight of, the weight of legalism and religion. It's just one thing added to another. Heaven-laden refers to being overloaded, <clears throat> and it speaks metaphorically of the burden of ceremonial observances rigorously exacted and increased by human traditions. Jesus said this about the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 4. He says, they tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders but they themselves are unwilling to move them with as much as a finger. In either case, whatever the <coughs> reason, there is no rest for the weary, except by answering the invitation from Jesus to come to him so that they would find rest for their souls. In coming to him, they would take his yoke upon themselves and find that his yoke is easy and his load is light. The cure is not to work harder, but to avail oneself of God's grace, which immediately lifts the burden of sin off one's back and brings them into a place of true rest. It is in that place of rest that we could truly grow <clears throat> as we enroll in the school of Christ and learn from him. In that place of rest, we find that his yoke is easy and his load is light and his commandments are not burdensome. In this place of rest, we cease from our own works then. Hebrews 4.10 says, the one who has entered his God's rest as himself also ceased from his own works as God did from his. So what works is he talking about? What works are we to cease from? It is certainly not suggesting that we quit our jobs and go into full-time ministry or become a monk or a nun or, or just sit around depending on others to take care of us. That's not what he's saying. There are actually two intertwined aspects to this resting from one's works which we need to consider and understand. The first aspect of this is something that we do know, yet perhaps we may still have some struggles in walking it out. I think we understand that fairly well that we come to Christ not on the basis of works which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy and grace. Titus 3, 5 through 7 tells us that. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says that we're saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, that no one should boast. We cannot work our way into 
salvation. We cannot work our way into heaven. But also, works can't keep us saved either. We're kept by God's grace. But God does, he does want us to walk in good works, doesn't he? Which he prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that. So the first aspect of resting from our works is to understand God's work of salvation and to give up our own efforts to achieve it. We simply need to accept it by faith and continue to live by faith. Jesus' invitation to come to him, <clears throat> all those who are weary and ever laden, and he would give them rest is exactly that. We're to come to him by faith, accepting his sacrificial work on the cross on our behalf, and therein we will find rest. Furthermore, we are to continue to live the Christian life by faith. Paul tells us in Romans 1.17 that it is that in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. In other words, it starts with faith and is lived out by faith. As it is written, he says, the righteous man shall live by faith. <clears throat> when, the light, when, this light finally, when the light finally broke through for Martin Luther, uh, as he made it, meditated on this verse, Romans 1.17, in his own words he said this, Here I felt that I was altogether born again and entered the gates of paradise itself through open gates. No wonder he felt that way, because listen to how he described his struggle with sin and his laboring to be freed when he was in the monastery. He said this, I think this may be in your notes as well. <clears throat> when I was a monk, I tried with all diligence to live according to the rules. And I used to be contrite uh, to confess to assiduously perform, in other words, showing great care and attention and effort to perform my allotted penance. And yet my conscience would never give me certainty. I always doubted and said, you didn't do that correctly, Martin. <laughs> you were not contrite enough. You left that out of your confession. The more I tried to remedy a weak and afflicted conscience with the traditions of men, the more I found it each day more uncertain, weaker, and troubled. But the light finally broke through for Luther as he meditated on Romans 1.17, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. <clears throat> and he, fi he finally found rest in Christ. The second aspect of resting from works may not be something that we have given much thought to. And it is this. Finding our rest in Christ will forever change the way we view approach, and do all work. Whether it's working in the ministry, ministry full-time, working in one's own business, working as an employee, working as an employer, working in the home, <clears throat> as a homemaker. God wants us to enter his work. To work for him, really, so to speak. That concept seems somewhat obvious when we think about the apostles or really someone in full-time ministry. But being in full-time ministry does not necessarily translate to entering into God's work. Some are there for the wrong reasons, motivated by selfish ambition and who knows what. Same is probably true for many Christians doing so-called secular work. Often they're motivated by the same selfish ambitions. Uh, whether it's to make a lot of money and get rich, or whether it's for the purpose of advancement or recognition, power, clout, 
notoriety, influence, all these things, personal fulfillment. But God not only wants us to rest from our own works regarding salvation, he also wants us to rest from our own works in the sense of any work that we engage in. Resting from our works does not mean that we should cease working. Although it may mean quitting some of the things which we are presently engaged in. But in many cases, it may simply mean <clears throat> a change in motives and a change in vision and purpose. Looking at it through the lens of God's vision and purpose for work and for reaching sinners in the world, making new disciples and maturing existing ones, right? Really what God wants is for us to enter his work. In fact, it is as we enter into his work that we will truly rest from our work, which often stems from selfish ambition or selfish motivation. Interestingly, as you look at the life of Jesus himself, <clears throat> obviously we're not Jesus, but we're wanting to grow in likeness, <laughs> you know, grow in maturity, and as we do that, we're looking more and more like him, both in character and mission. Um, <clears throat> but Jesus says this in John 5:17: My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Interesting. What did he mean? See, God did not cease working after creation, obviously. He continues to work, and he's continuing to draw men unto himself, to save sinners, and to draw believers into closer relationship with him. So, so also, Jesus also said that he did not do anything that he did not see the Father doing. Interesting also, right? So it's kind of gives, you know, he didn't initiate things on his own. He did what he saw the Father doing. <clears throat> Jesus made this statement uh, in John 5, 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son cannot do, can do nothing on his, of, his, on, of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus simply entered into the work which God the Father is doing. And he invites us to do the same. In John 9, 4, Jesus speaking to his disciples, he said this, we, right, so he's including the disciples, must work the work of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. This is not just true for the person in full-time ministry. It is true for all Christians. Our mission is the same, to make new disciples and mature existing ones. Paul's instructions in Ephesians and Colossians about our conduct as employers and employees <clears throat> at work reflect really a dramatic change in the way we as Christians should view and approach our work. A lot of times I don't know that we necessarily see it that way. We just probably see it in the sense that, well, we just need to put in eight hours and we need to work hard and all that. Well, that we should do, actually. But our mindset about the work and our vision and purpose for being there should be different <laughs> than the, the other guy next door who doesn't know Christ. Um, as Christians, we are called to represent Christ in this world in everything we do, including our work. <clears throat> the apostle Peter writing to Christians who were scattered throughout Asia and elsewhere, says this in 1 Peter 2. <clears throat> he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's, for his own possession, that you may 
proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He didn't say you just do that in the church, right? <clears throat> Once you were not a people, he says, but you are, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, what they see, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of, uh, of visitation. So how do we enter into God's work? Interestingly, we enter into God's work the same way we enter into his rest. Jesus' invitation in Matthew 11 to come to him is to enter into relationship with him by faith in his work of, in his work of atonement on our behalf. And he says if we would do that, he would give us rest. <laughs> we would find rest for our souls. But finding that rest for our souls requires us to do something else. Take his yoke upon us. Having found rest in him, we'll also find that his, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So let's talk a little bit about the yoke itself. In Jesus' time, a yoke was a wooden device added to single or multiple oxen or horses or mules to get them to pull something, you know, pull a cart or uh, plow. <clears throat> it was heavy and burdensome and designed for the animal to move in a given direction. For multiple oxen or animals, it dispersed the load between them and also caused them to move in the same direction. Well, think about this. When Jesus spoke of the yoke of the Pharisee, he was likely using the analogy of a yoke for a single animal because of what he says in Matthew 23, 4, it says they tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with a, as much as a finger. You see, the Pharisees were not willing to bear any of the load because they did not care about the people, just about themselves and their self-interest. In contrast, though, to the yoke of the Pharisees, the yoke which Jesus speaks of by analogy in, in Matthew 11, it's probably for multiple animals, certainly for at least two. <clears throat> uh, see, I'm in yoke with him. I'm joined to Christ by faith. And in a sense, he really is the yoke. And by faith in what he did for me, I, I'm placed in him. <clears throat> in contrast to, you, to the yoke of the Pharisees, which in which they did not bear any of the load. The load distribution being in yoke with Christ is pretty much carried by him. In salvation, for sure we see that, he did all the work. And who gets the benefit? See, I get the benefit of it by faith in him. But also in our living out our Christianity, guess what he does? He provides everything we need to do so as well. Peter tells us, <coughs> excuse me, in 2 Peter 1, 3, that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. This is one of the reasons he says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He provides everything. The idea of being in yoke with Christ <clears throat> is that the yoke causes us to go in the same direction as he's going. We were going the same direction as he's going if we cease from our own works. Or else. <clears throat> he then becomes our life. Colossians 3.3 3 says, We died and our lives are hidden with Christ in God. 
In reality though, let's face it, this is a lifelong process because we get so distracted by all kinds of attractions around us that is pulling on us. Our own self, selfish ambitions which sometimes tend to find a level of satisfaction in the world around us. And all kinds of things are beckoning at us and calling for our attention. We make choices and many times we make the wrong choices. But he uses everything, even the wrong choices, to lead us in a course that causes us to little by little lay down our lives and follow him. But it is only in this yoke relationship with Christ that we're going to really find true rest for our souls. As we learn to yield to Christ in this yoke relationship, he's the one that's directing the show and doing the work. In that relationship, we have essentially then entered his work and have rested from ours. <clears throat> that is when God is able to accomplish tremendous things through us because we are not working against Christ, but in harmony with him. In this place of rest, we will find that his yoke is easy and his load is light. Otherwise, what we're going to find is his yoke is not easy <laughs> because he's continually wrestling with us to go in his direction. So how does that apply to us? Hopefully through the message, God, is <clears throat> God has been able to put his finger on some area of unbelief in our lives where we have not availed ourselves of the rest that Christ has made available for us to experience and enjoy. In a real practical sense, our rest in Christ is what enables us to endure, endure in the face of trials and temptations. In that place of rest, we rely, we rely on God's resources, not our own. In fact, we lose the battle every time if we rely on our own resources. And so if you have been losing some battles lately, in the face of trying situations or whatever, perhaps the first move should be not to try harder in your own strength, but to respond to Jesus' invitation to come to him and find true rest. <clears throat> perhaps you're here today <clears throat> and uh, you don't have any idea about this rest in Christ that we've been talking about because you don't have a relationship with Jesus who provides this rest for his people. Grace and faith are foreign to you. But you realize today that you have been working hard to make yourself somewhat acceptable to God in hopes that he might accept you on the basis of your good works and effort. But the message you heard may have somehow rung through just a little bit. The writer of Hebrews would say to you, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Jesus' invitation in Matthew 11 is for you today. So I invite you to come up after the service. We're going, we'll have a prayer, prayer team uh, up here. <coughs> and, uh, <coughs> and I'll be up here as well. Uh, and we could talk with you about receiving Christ as your Lord and Savior. The fact of the matter is, though, you could go to the Lord and talk to him yourself. Because he's there with outstretched arms ready to welcome you. You're, you may already know Christ as Lord and Savior, but something in the message spoke directly to you. Perhaps you realize today that you are not experiencing the fullness of the rest that God has made provisions for you to experience in Christ. The invitation to come to him and take his yoke upon you applies to you, to you as well today. So let's close. I think it's right at 12. We'll just close in prayer. And then we'll invite people, the, the prayer team would come forward um, after I, I pray. And you're welcome to come <coughs> and talk about any thing really that's on your heart um, and certainly particularly if it's about 
salvation today. So we would welcome, welcome that. Lord, thank you for your uh, word to us this morning. Thank you for teaching, guiding us, doing your work in your heart, Lord, and uh, in our hearts. And really just a simple request, Lord, to you, you know, I, I sure pray that your word would not return void, but it would be fruitful in your people, whether it's making new disciples or maturing existing ones. So we thank you, Lord. We praise you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.